Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of my discussion with Max Easton about his debut novel, The Magpie Wing. Now, this is part two. If you missed part one, go back and listen. It'll be the most recent on your podcast app from Final Draft. It'll give you some really important context around Max's incredible novel about Sydney subcultures and the East-West Sydney divide. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. At Final Draft, we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is Stolen Land. Treaty has never been made in Australia. Max Easton is a writer. He's a musician. He's a podcaster from Western Sydney. Today, we've got part two of his novel, The Magpie Wing. It is the 90s. Walt, Helen and Duncan are growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney. Walt and Duncan are paired on the footy field while Walt's sister Helen has to run the drinks in the West, they know that they don't want to be like the Silver Tails in the East. They are happy with their legacy of Tommy Rodonicus and working class battlers. As the three grow up together, though, they start to look for more than their suburban existence offers. Walt and Helen move to Sydney's inner West. There they find underground success in the punk and noise music scene. Duncan takes a different route. He stays home, diligently completing uni, finds himself a more conventional job. As the three crisscross each other's lives, they find themselves with contradictory purposes and opaque goals. Always present, though, is where they come from and how being from the West defines them in other people's eyes. In part two of my conversation with Max, we're going to get deeper into Max's writing style, explore gentrification in Sydney, and yet we're going to have a look at the East-West Sydney divide. Join me as we discover Max Easton's The Magpie Wing. I want to highlight something about the book that intrigued me. And I, I think at the moment we're talking a lot about the ideas and and touching on the way they're exemplified through the characters. But in a in a book that takes in, you know, some 30-odd years of characters at very different life stages dealing with very different ideas and communities, um, it's, it's remarkable the way you balance all of that. And I found your writing style really engaging. It's very matter of fact, you know, whether it be a, a drug field night or a sudden death, it felt like you were kind of keeping keeping it all even and in this very immediate tone. And it wasn't until I'd lived a few decades with Walt and Helen in particular that I realized that like that's that's how life is, you know. We can look back with perspective, but it felt like you were trying to preserve some of that right nowness of their experiences. What was what was your sense of the style as you were um, as you were crafting each of these these, these character stories? Um, oh, I really appreciate that comment um, because I haven't I honestly haven't given a lot of thought to it. Um, this is the first time I've written fiction, um, so I don't know. Maybe that's like kind of comes from the way that I write have written nonfiction, which has often been in the contemporary. Um, to that story that I'm telling. But yeah, I really didn't, 
And I had to toy with a lot of different ways to do it. It came out of a bunch of old short stories that I could never get published. Um, so some were first person, some were looking back, um, some were very in the moment, some were like, you know, vignetti, I guess, which got turned into chapters. But um, yeah, I'm glad the immediacy worked in the end. So it really did come down to like, I wanted a narrator with a real limited frame of reference, but the narrator's kind of like knows what's going to happen. So there's, there, there's still some allusions to the next event or the past event without, you know, you know, and I think actually maybe like a real lesson from that was maybe the first or second draft where it was just like, Oh shit. Like I've got to talk about COVID somehow because I, I don't want it to be a 2019 period piece, which I think we're probably going to see a lot of <laughs> to avoid all the hand washing and checking in or whatever. But um, it was like, how can I write it as though, you know, like the characters in 996 can't know that a pandemic is coming in 30 years. Um, so I think that's kind of charged that the limited frame of reference for the characters, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I also, it really helped balance very different characters characters some of whom are actively they don't like each other some of them hate each other some of them like each other and hate each other at different times it helps balance characters who have very changing ideas and that changes the way we feel about them but still drives the story forward i mean pulling pulling walt just sort of to the fore here there's a really challenging moment for him in the latter part of a book relating to his his ideas, ideas that he's been nurturing over many, many years, and he finally just he gets called out on them. And, uh, you know, at a moment when he was already having a bit of an existential crisis. And, it, I, I, I mean, for me, I, I sort of went, oh, does this, does this have to change the way we think about it, Walt or how we feel? And, and yes, maybe it does, but the way you, you wrote it, kind of just it kept the narrative momentum move forward even if there was going to be this fundamental shift in this character that maybe we'd grown some affection for yeah and that was um yeah i'm, I'm glad you picked that one up too because that was something i worked really hard on for walt and it's a bit of a i think i kind of actually learned that from randy newman who's my favorite songwriter a really incredible satirical parody type guy who brings you through, makes you love a character and then makes them do something really horrible. And you look back and it unveils, unveils all the truths of, of that character's um, either their flaws or just like the blind spots in their mode of thinking. So for Walt, um, without, I had to struggle between being like subtle and ham fisted a lot of the time, but I really wanted to build him up into this like, uh, you know, this guy's going to become someone brilliant and he's going to change the world and he's going to lead a uh, people's movement of Western Sydney. And um, he's like the hero of this book, but he's in hindsight, very obvious blind points in his mode of thinking um, to like isolate that to a specific point in a conversation at a pub where he just gets kind of called out and destroyed for yeah, yeah just like missing the obvious. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's just yeah, and I mean, I've got I've got two of the sort of the big ideas that I saw running through the book that I wanted I wanted to, us to get to, and I didn't know I didn't know how to approach them because I I want I want the narrative to kind of come through in us talking, and um, but let's let's go to that one because that 
Walt's ideas around Western Sydney, Western Sydney identity are really, really formative for him. And he writes this manifesto that wholly, fail, wholly fails to appreciate Indigenous perspectives amongst, amongst others, but still also highlights rightly marginalisation in the area. You know, we've already touched on this. It's a big, it's a big part of our current discussion with COVID that um, it seems like there's so much demonisation of the West and the Southwest. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you feel about, like, the, the, it's been an evolving discussion. We have, you know, an incredible art scene um, that isn't, isn't just a counterpoint to, or I don't see it as a counterpoint to the inner city, um, you know, in Western Sydney. Do you see things changing? Where do, you, where do you see things sitting, looking at, say, even that 30-year perspective that the Magpie Wing takes in? Yeah, I've seen some um, interesting evolutions, which I kind of touch on at parts um, because I'm from Liverpool, from Southwest Sydney, and um, I guess a lot of Walt's uh, hang-ups and chips on the shoulder is something that I feel in a lot of people I know from Western Sydney felt too. It was like it grew up, it was very you know, people look down their nose at you. Uh, people would make fun of my accent when, especially because I had this like heightened experience of joining the academy and you know doing you know scientific career at Sydney Uni. Um, you know, my thesis supervisor introduced me as from parts unknown, um, stuff like that. There was this real condescending attitude to being from the southwest. Um, and then all of a sudden, at some point, uh, some like great writers and artists and musicians started coming up from Western Sydney and um, kind of creating something of their own, which was very co-opted by government. Um, and it be- then became this bizarre situation where I, if someone asked where I was from and I was like, oh, I'm from, yeah, I'm from Liverpool. They'd be like, oh, wow, good on you. And like, good on you for moving to the city and like succeeding and like being a part of this, like, you know, um, and a lot of that's imagined, a lot of that's chip on the shoulder shit, but um, I think it's quite real. And it, it became particularly pronounced, I'd say between five and 10 years ago when uh, being from Western Sydney became a key performance indicator for funding applications. So if you were indigenous or if you were um, queer or if you were from a different background or second generation immigrant or first generation immigrant, or if you're from Western Sydney, you could get, you know, you were bumped up the funding cycle. And I just felt so bizarre about, about that. I felt that to be so strange and so limiting about what the idea of, cause there's, you know, there, are, I, I grew up in Kasula you know, on one side of the highway, there was like the housing commission and around the corner from us, there were like the McMansions and there was a literal mansion on the top of a hill. Like, it's quite. It's a very diverse area. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying about that is, yeah, there's been a huge change, and just kind of just when I thought in writing this book that uh, we'd kind of settled upon, it's like, oh, you know, like quite a nuanced idea of the divisions among the city. This recent outbreak hit, and the military gets sent into Bankstown, and it's just like this. It hasn't gone away, and there is a real us, us and them. Uh, mentality between the centre of the city and the way that Western Sydney is visualised or treated. Um, And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think it's really good for everyone to actually see that it's real 
um, and not just something that's sensed or shows up in a, uh, like as a political football every, every four years, you know? Um, I mean, I had a sense that maybe my next question could be, so do we still have two Sydneys? Now, that's, that's just a spurious question. We've already answered that. Who do you think it profits to maintain this idea of two Sydneys, though? Who, you know, is there any, is there any point in it, in it being maintained? Because for me it feels like the incredible sort of artistic movements that are coming out um, of Western Sydney are, you know, probably don't want to be co-opted by, you know, a white eastern suburb elite and then there's this whole situation with COVID at the moment where just, you know, wealth and privilege disparities are just shocking. They're absolutely shocking. And I really don't understand I really don't understand who is benefiting from this other than seeing that it, it is happening. Yeah, yeah. And I I feel the same way. I haven't spent enough time really understanding how it works, but I mean it's something that been reading about a lot more in plan for some future project is this this divide that is occurring and is kind of like I guess I mean it must be in some some degree kind of encouraged by people in power or or or, or money or money financial interests but this is happening in the north of England um, the north south divide which is becoming more and more extreme and you know historically it's a very south south and north of italy type divide of that's more like factories and peasants and 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 farmers but yeah there there is this interesting sort of degree of which the pandemic is really highlighting is um the people who seem to be able to work from home across this you know like that incredibly accurate red rooster line and the people who have to work outside of the home, uh, kind of being stuck in the Southwest with no financial support and having to move around. Um, yeah, like, I mean, there's, I can understand the history of that, but as to why it's almost seems to be encouraged or maintained, um, I don't know. And I mean, and that's why the book was so, important for me personally to write was I got to actually tease out these ideas and without actually having to have an answer, um, mm. kind of just talk about them and, and discuss them. And, you know, I've come no closer to understanding it, but yeah, I think I really needed to put them on paper for my own sanity, if that makes sense. I think, I mean, I think sometimes posing the question is what begins the thought process for a lot of people. And hey, we're if this if this were talkback, we could be sort of saying, well, we're broadcasting to this in <laughs> to these two cities. We're broadcasting um, to to everyone in all of these spaces that we're talking about. Call us now with your ideas. But I mean, we're obviously not a callback shows, but uh, that doesn't mean people can't be thinking about these questions that we're posing. Now we're getting dangerously close to. Um, me just indulging thoughts and and reminiscences and nostalgia that you brought up for me having grown up in Sydney as well. Uh, But I'm going to do it anyway um, (laughs) because I was really interested in in the broader conversation through the magpie wing of gentrification. Um, And it seems seems to me gentrification as we see it sort of happening on a daily basis in, in different streets, in different suburbs, 
is a force for for dispossession, for marginalization, especially in poorer areas where people literally can't afford to live where their their parents, their grandparents lived. It, it, you know, it also does horrible things to architecture, mostly with render and um, and various shades of taut paint. But then there's a section where, through Duncan, you discuss the Crossroads Hotel. And I was taken back to being a bartender around around sort of a similar time. And there was, a lot of Sydney ciders might remember, there was a the top 100 list of violent pubs and these were all being cracked down on. They were having restrictions put on them if they couldn't meet certain conditions. And that was part of the catalyst to a lot of these places cleaning up and using poking money, gentrifying. Me personally, I kind of didn't mind that quietening down and that diminishing threat that I might cop a punch on a random night shift. Um, whereas, so for Duncan, he he's sort of like, oh, you wouldn't believe the crossroads. There hasn't been a fight there for months. Like he's disappointed. It's like they they turned the TVs off. Do you think there's a balance in these processes? I mean, it it, it strikes me that gentrification isn't a force for good, but again, less violence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a nuanced conversation and um yeah for me to even talk about in the book um like I grew up on the other side of the highway to the crossroads it was like a few I don't know it was about 50 meters away and um yeah there were a lot of incidents going there when I was young like you know someone was stabbed to death right around the corner from my house after a night at crossroads um but you know like I was never in a fight or anything you know I wasn't certainly intimidated at times but yeah, I mean, there's also, there's always this conflicting thing where it's just kind of like, if it is what it is, a place has soul before um, it falls to financial interests or um, the interests of good behavior, which I suppose is something that gentrification has a real um, issue with is good behavior. But then it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's obviously so complicated and it's hard for me to talk about as, someone who's also a gentrifier, like I live in Summer Hill now after living in Dulwich Hill and I'm kind of moving with the gentrifying wave. Um, Summer Hill recently took out its ATM, the only ATM in town, um, which is just such a violent step of gentrification is to remove people who depend on cash economies. Mm. Um, There's no bank there. It's just, it's purely for young professionals now. And that's a part of the project, I suppose. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But, ATMs, public toilets as well, you know, like something that something that people might need to utilise because they don't have recourse to something that will ultimately cost more or rely on yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, certainly. And it's, you know, like um, cash in hand is, you know, it can be depleted and you can see it depleting and it's it sort of favours people with bottomless bank accounts who can sort of tap away at things and, you know, no public toilets means, you know, you have to go to a home or you have to, um, yeah. And enter a, enter a pub. I mean, everyone loves using a pub toilet, but that's the closest thing we have to a public toilet now and they're all closed. So, Mm. um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, your point about, yeah, also is, um, a bartender's like dealt with drunk, customers it's like it's easier working at a very nice little small bar than it is working at a um you know inverted commas sketchy pub um you know i work a bartender lidcombe oval for magpies 
games and it's harder to deal with a rabble or like a, a rowdy crowd, but it's more fun. <laughs> I'd rather work. I love working at Comerville Canteen. I hate working, hated working at the local small bar. So yeah, I don't like these things are so nuanced and difficult to get right. But I think largely in terms of just income disparity and experience of people of, of everyone and, and equality gentrification is such a force of finance and real estate. And it's, um, demonstrably repulsive um, unless you happen to have a good income and you're like going to local small, small bar, which I also do. So <laughs> I, I come from a very conf- conflict. I'm a very conflicted person, I think. Yeah, I think, and particularly the era that we were just talking about, it strikes me there was, there was a really, um, there was a difficult tension between, I guess, those forces of gentrification, keeping things, keeping things polite, keeping things nice and where we were at with dealing with masculine culture. Because I mean, of course you don't have to, you don't have to redo the carpet and you don't have to introduce Asahi on tap to reduce violence in your pub. Um, But you do have to address people drinking too much, throwing punches who are overwhelmingly, men like i mean if there was ever a fight between two women in the pub where i i um worked we would be talking about it for years literally because that would be how long it would take for the next one to happen whereas you know a fight between two men we'd be talking about how many we managed to you know break up or stop on a particular night but of course um there's there's a difficult overlap there as well and we're coming back to ideas around dispossession and wealth disparities and um Area that I guess we've we've trodden over a little bit already. Mm. Mm. Um, Max, this is this is a terrific. This is this is bordering on the um, on the, the the just just having a good old chin wag. I want to remind people <laughs> that there is a book. There is a book. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking. I'm speaking with Max Easton, and his debut novel is The Magpie Wing. It is a sprawling story of Sydney. It is an incredible story of the cultures that make up that city. And it has some incredible ideas about what those cultures mean and where we've moved with them. Max, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate the chat. It's the first time I've spoken about it. So um, I feel uh, yeah, unqualified to talk, and <laughs> but I um, really appreciate the chat. Thanks very much. Uh, awesome, man. No, thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Max Easton. Max's new novel is The Magpie Wing. It's out now from Giramondo. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundagara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Love to hear from you. Tell me, what are you reading? How are you enjoying it? What books are getting you through lockdown? You can also subscribe in your podcast app. I will make sure there is a new great conversation for you every week, sometimes too. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.